This episode of the GabFest contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political GabFest for September 10th, 2020, the Rage edition. I am David Plotz, still not quite ready to announce my next thing. So I'm just David Plotz again in Washington, D.C. I am joined from New Haven, Connecticut by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. Good morning. It is raining here, which is nice and soothing, actually. And from New York City, I think, I'm guessing, yeah, I'm just going to assume New York City, John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes. Hello, John. Hello, David. Hello, Emily. It's probably raining there, too. On today's GabFest, Bob Woodward has a new book, Rage, which has all kinds of interesting revelations about the president. Maybe not revelations, because they kind of confirm everything we know, notably that he minimized the virus. This comes a week after the president was revealed to have grossly insulted America's war dead. Will any of this affect the race at all? Then the Justice Department, the Barr Justice Department, has seized control of a case, the president's defense in a lawsuit brought by E. Jean Carroll, a lawsuit against the president over her accusation that he he raped her and then then his uh, defamation of her in response to her, her accusation. What happens when the government is warped, when justice is warped and twisted to protect the president's private interests? Then the brilliant and delightful Vox journalist Matthew Iglesias has written a fascinating and audacious book, One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger. He will join us to talk about it. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And, dear ones, we have a live show coming at you next week. We are taking part in the Texas Tribune Festival virtually this year, and we're going to do another streaming live show, our second one of the pandemic. And, Best of all, Jamel Bowie, dear Jamel Bowie, is joining us, New York Times columnist, and he's going to join us for that whole show, and we hope to see you as well. We're going to stream live on Slate's YouTube and Facebook pages at 7 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday, September 16th, and for links and details, go to slate.com slash live. So I will posit that none of the three of us have read Bob Woodward's book, which has just come out. It's called Rage. It includes pieces of 18 interviews that, the, that he did with the president over the past year or so. Um, and it includes the remarkable fact, which we can talk about the ethics of this, but that back uh, months and months ago when the president was minimizing the virus to the country and talking about how it wasn't a big deal, he was acknowledging to Woodward what a big deal the virus was. These revelations in the Woodward book, and there are others too, which we can talk about, comes a week after an amazing story in The Atlantic by Jeffrey Goldberg, which was a story confirmed in its general outlines by CNN and Fox News, among others, that the president referred to American war dead as losers and suckers. I just, you know, there's no, there's no, there's no revelation of President Trump's cruelty, selfishness, and immorality that would surprise anyone or anyone who's been following him at any time. And yet, you know, still is somewhat shocking when another one comes. John, my question really, because it all feels like this is just about the presidential election at this point, because people know what the president's character is or they don't. Um, does any of this matter? Does the Woodward stuff matter? Does the the, the denigration of the war dead matter? Um, so the, the, who knows? The reason you're asking that question, though, is because we're so polarized that we've seen very little has changed the nature and shape of the race and even the president's approval rating, that he gets pounded and pounded, but his approval rating, you know, falls into the mid-30s, but doesn't go down into the teens where you would sometimes expect it to be based on some of the public revelations. Just sorting the two things you mentioned on the military front, 83% of Americans, according to Pew, have confidence in the uh, in, in the military. It is, um, by most polls, the most respected institution in the country. So um, saying anything bad about the military is um, is the most dangerous thing you could do of all the groups you could talk about. Secondly, his constituency is represented by 
a lot of people in the military, and he's made a strong play to them over the course of his administration. So this has the potential to pretend, to soften a little bit, maybe. One of the things he's also trying to do, though, is not just keep his base, but grow his base among non-college uh, white voters. Among non-college white voters, this is not a good message to, to have. If he wants to increase his, his number of that group that turns out, which is a harder thing to do than just merely bringing in the people who are habituated to voting. He's trying to get people who've never voted before to vote now. And so that's all the reasons why this may be um, a little bit more of a problem. One of the things I'm really interested in is whether they, there's a, been a constant culture clash between the president and the military in the sense that they they are taught to live by a certain code that, that represents um, a certain set of behaviors. Now, whether they always hold, uh, live up to that code is one thing, but they are taught repeatedly to basically behave in a way that's completely different than the way the president does. And I've always wondered whether that would matter with them. With respect to Woodward, um, I'll stop talking. But but the big thing, obviously, is that by underplaying the um, the threat from the coronavirus, the president is failing at his single most important duty, which is keeping people safe. And so and it's not just a single lapse. It's a protracted, extensive lapse. And he wasn't just trying not to sow panic, as he said, but he was actively undermining those who were warning about the coronavirus, telling people it was a democratic plot and that the media was behind it. And that is particularly pernicious because it's not just underplaying. It's teaching people to see anybody who warns of the coronavirus threat as themselves worthy of suspicion and to worry about them when they're warning about the coronavirus, which builds in a skepticism uh, at just the moment you want to be doing the exact opposite, which is giving people clear information. Yeah, I found this actually staggering. I mean, Trump chose division over this enormous looming public health threat. And what we see in this quote is that he has total clarity over the facts of the threat. He said, this is deadly stuff. You just breathe the air and that's how it's passed. It's also more deadly than even your strenuous flus. And then at one point, he talks about it being like 5% lethal mortality rate as opposed to around 1% for the flu. Like that's a grasp of the basic facts of coronavirus. And at the time, the notion that it was airborne was not at all the sort of consensus public health message. I mean, this is around the time when we were all like disinfecting things that came into our houses because we were worried about surface transmission. There could have been real lives saved, I think, if this had been clearly telegraphed from the White House on down, as opposed to the constant battling, scrambled messages that Trump was providing by undermining people like Dr. Fauci, who were trying to provide these clear scientific facts. So to hear him say it cogently at this early point in February, I, I thought it was shocking in a, forget the politics, just in a sort of like leader of the nation way. And I, it's very hard to understand how he made this choice. So there was a really interesting kind of feedback loop thing that someone tweeted to all of us, I think. Uh, and I'm sorry, I don't have it right in front of me. But the theory, it's interesting theory, which is that so Trump sets out to minimize it because he decides like for strategic political reasons or because now he says because he didn't want to panic the country, although God knows he's happy to panic the country over anything else, that he was going to minimize it. So then Fox parrots that back to him and Fox says, oh, it's no it's no big deal. And then the president starts to actually believe that it's no big deal. And so this becomes actual an actual belief system. Do you think there's anything to that or do you think it's all it's all totally cynical throughout, John? Well, I think it's a fascinating thing because what he starts to see is proof of his underlying, I think the reason for his underlying um, downplaying of it, which is that he starts to see that it, it um, is winning with his base to keep underplaying it. And then he sees it's winning within his base to attack the people who are warning about the coronavirus. And so given we, what we know about him, which is that he loves to hear the roar of the crowd, and we know that that was part of what the, the motivation behind the NFL taking on the NFL players who chose to kneel during the national anthem, you, you can almost see the origin moment when he mentions it at a rally and it gets a strong response and then he keeps going after it. So I think there's plenty of evidence to support that narrative, whether that was the, the underlying narrative. I think that the, the, the distinction here is that when the president sees it in his political interests, he's willing to fan the flames. I mean, he has tweeted twice as much about the threat from mail-in ballots as he has the threat from the coronavirus. Think about that. Something that's on its way to killing 190,000 Americans. He is more um, quiet about 
than he is the threat from mail-in ballots. Obviously, what he has tweeted a great deal more about the uh, about the violence in Portland and Kenosha than he has either of those than that he has anywhere close to about the coronavirus. And and I think the distinction is those things that he thinks help him politically. He's willing to sow panic. Something that if he if he puts his hands on it by assuming the role as a public health official, and he should because he's the most uh, he has the best platform in the country. If he assumes that role, he puts his sticky hands on the thing, then he's responsible for it. And he is clearly all along and including in his Woodward interviews, tried to uh, kind of duck and, and wiggle around responsibility. So why hang a lamp on this bummer of a thing by uh, talking about how bad it is? Well, the answer is because it's your job. Emily, you you had an amazing, I wish we could uh, uh, show on audio your your facial and hand gestures during that. But do you, going back to the original question I began with, do you think any of this matters to the election? Again, like he is doing his job badly. He has, you know, betrayed the public trust. We all know this, but really at this point it is like, I think basically people have decided the, the job is to get him out of office. It's not to expect that any of his sins will be actually punished or held accountable. He will be held accountable. So does any of this actually affect the dynamic of the race? Well, what matters is whether there are more people who think that they want to get him out of office. And if nothing else, this changed the subject back to the coronavirus and his failures of leadership on that front from a week in which he was on political turf that he prefers, i.e., you know, protests and racial injustice, which he doesn't want to talk about and would frame differently. So, you know, in that sense, I think it's somewhat helpful to remind people, especially because there were polls last week showing that people's concerns about the coronavirus are beginning to ebb. That could, of course, change depending on what happens around the country with the virus between now and Election Day. But it remains a serious threat, according to all the public health folks who are warning about, you know, going inside as the months get colder and the effect that could have. So to the degree that we absorb this as a fact of missed opportunity, this moment of um, national unity and prevention around a strategy of preventing airborne transmission that would have really changed things. I think that, you know, it could give some more voters pause about whether they want this person in charge who blew this huge national emergency. I agree. This is something we can evaluate in real time. In other words, this isn't just about what he did in the one month when a decision was his alone and the stakes were as high as they possibly can be. We've explained all the ways in which that's bad. But in in his characterization about it, he wasn't just trying not to sow panic. He was actively pushing an alternative storyline. So he's being dishonest about his previous dishonesty, which means in real time, he is continuing to undermine the most important thing in a public health crisis, as our friend Amanda Ripley would, would tell us, which is clean, clear information. You need to know that what you're getting is the best of what's available because you're going to need to make your own public health decisions about this. And every day the president kept this quiet or, or tried to minimize it, more people were out spreading it. Well, now you there's no wonder that 65%, according to CBS's last poll, don't trust any vaccine that would come out under this administration. It's because this original instinct to deceive has snowballed in so many different ways. When the press secretary says, no, he never tried to downplay it. And the Washington Post has already collected a video of 32 instances in which he said the virus would simply go away. It's a real-time indication of thoroughgoing deceit been at the center of this response, which only sows more uh, suspicion about future health decisions that are going to have to be made. And as we talked about on the show last week, they're sticky about this vaccine distribution. So it's a problem in the real time. This isn't just about the past. And then finally, whether anybody cares about this, we just don't know. But clearly one of their objectives is to try to get some of these people who've left Donald Trump since he took office, those suburban Republicans, to take a second look at him. And as Emily quite rightly points out, this puts it on new turf. He was trying to panic the suburbanites. Um, and this moves it back to turf in which he is much less comfortable. And he's on the record. This isn't anonymous. Uh the president is literally on the record in real time showing that he knows more than he, than what he's telling the public. I want to close this topic just because it's, this topic is sort of cycling back and forth between the military and the Woodward book. But to the, going back to this military, uh, this disrespect, this is just but so many examples of the, the president's scorn and derision of the military. He referred to 
dating. He he referred to his own Vietnam as as dating in the 1980s. He bragged about faking his bone spurs to avoid Vietnam and called the people who served in Vietnam suckers. He called John McCain a loser. He said he preferred soldiers who don't get captured. He has avoided going to Dover to meet the remains of the dead. He lied about that. He has insulted Gold Star parents. And then this thing about losers and suckers. And yet there's been relative silence. There's been actually total silence from the people who could provide the most damning confirmation evidence about this. Jim, Jim, I presume that your friend Jim Mattis, John, has heard similar and worse that the president has said. John Kelly, who's his chief of staff, has surely heard similar and worse. Why, particularly in the case of Mattis and Kelly, who served this president, have they not spoken up publicly on the record to really, you know, really lay into him about this. They're, they are loyal to a system that is being destroyed by someone who does not respect it. And yet they, 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 you know, it just feels like, I mean, I understand the bind they're in, but I'm surprised that neither of them has, has actually spoken up. Well, it's a fascinating question. And there's is some indication that Mattis is on the record with Woodward in a way that he has not been on the record with, um, some other journalists uh, who, with, to whom he has said the same thing, but not on the record. And to give you the maddest view of it, as I've heard him articulate it, um, is he believes in a system. Um, and w- even though he believes the president is threatening that system, um, and again, it's not just with like saying bad things, it's the way in which he treats um, the military, the way in which he undermines the the discipline and and um, set of values that are at the center of the military, and the way he uses it essentially as a prop. And remember, all the people who've spoken out about the way the president has used the mil- military. I mean, former jo- chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Mike Mullen, Stanley McChrystal, Admiral McRaven, both of whom were head of Joint Special Operations and led forces in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, Mattis, Kelly. I mean, they've all um, spoken out about his relationship with the military, not just um, his other issues in office. But what, what Mattis would say is he's a threat to a system. But that system, if I think it should be retained, also requires that I hold my tongue because of my position in the military for so many years. And that to do the same thing he's doing, which is essentially rip apart the system in order because I've made a judgment about what's necessary in the moment is to repeat what he's doing. And that if you believe in the system, you have to live by its codes. That's his argument. I think you can make uh, a strong case against that because as you point out, David, there's no point in upholding the strictures of a system. If the system itself doesn't exist any, any longer after it's, after it's over, but that's the, nevertheless his position, which is that you basically can't stop behavior by repeating it yourself. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GabFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. E. Jean Carroll, journalist, writer, really interesting figure, says that Donald Trump raped her many years ago in a department store dressing room. She wrote a book Detailing this allegation, Trump lied, said he'd never met her, uh, that a claim that was easily disproved with photographs of the two of them together, then insulted her, said she wasn't his type. She has sued him for defamation in New York. 
And this week, just as he was about to be required to produce a DNA sample and some other materials, Trump, or to be more exact, his minions at the Department of Justice under Bill Barr did something extraordinary. What is it that they did, Emily? They filed a motion in court seeking to intervene and replace Trump's private lawyers with the Justice Department. To do this, they have to say that the um, disparaging of E. Jean Carroll that Trump did when she came forward, I think last year, was were remarks he made in the course of his presidential duty. It was under the scope of his employment. That's the standard for the federal government stepping in and representing you if you are a federal official. And the, this move not only involves the Justice Department in defending Trump's behavior, but it would also require the suit to be dismissed entirely because if you are being sued in your official capacity, you can't actually be sued for defamation. And, you know, this was in some ways like a kind of shocking move because it seemed to suggest that anything Trump says, however sexist, insulting, scurrilous, comes under his official duties. Bill Barr is playing down the kind of unusual nature of this motion. And in his defense is this Court of Appeals decision for the District of Columbia Circuit in 2006. So I'm just going to lay out the facts of that case because I wonder how similar you guys think this is. So this Republican congressman from North Carolina was sued for defamation because he was explaining why his wife had left Washington And he said she was dissatisfied because she was uncomfortable living across the street from the headquarters of the Council on American-Islamic Relations after 9-11 because this congressman said that the Council on American-Islamic Relations was, quote, the fundraising arm for Hezbollah. And so the question is like, okay, when he made that false claim about this organization, which goes by the acronym CARE, Was he saying that in um, the scope of his employment? And the D.C. Circuit said yes and threw out that lawsuit. So is that the same as what Trump said about Eugene Carroll? Well, I I don't think obviously what Trump said about Eugene Carroll is different. And, you know, it concerns things that happened long before he was president. It concerns his private sexual behavior and possible crime that he committed. And that's very different. I do think that there is this way in which when you are the president, every almost anything you do because of how the American presidency is covered and the the beast that it's become about which John can speak better, anything you do is news. And also, if if I, I believe that Trump was responding to a reporter's question about this. I don't think Trump went out and volunteered. I never met her and she's not my type. I think she was at he was asked about it by a reporter in the course of doing his job as president of talking to the media. And so, you know, I, I, it's, it's, it would, I'm not sure. I guess I feel like when the president has to respond to reporters questions, he's doing his job. Um, so yeah, I think I do think that. Here's what I don't get. So essentially this has the, this turns the case into a case against the United States, not against Donald Trump. Is that right, Emily? Is that a way to think about it? Exactly. And it would just, get rid of the whole defamation claim before any materials get, before DNA gets turned over. Right. The United States can't defame a person, but Donald Trump could. Precisely. Yeah. Okay. So that's, so it's a neat legal sleight of hand that might even have some um, backing behind it. And so I guess to the extent that it's successful, then this goes away and there's no DNA taken and we have no more chapters of this, but it's not a great time to have this particular chapter again, we should have the, the massive roll in the massive asterisk uh, on the dolly here, which is maybe nothing matters in this campaign. And it's all about turnout and nobody changes their mind. But if you were trying to change somebody's mind, one person you try to change is the mind of a suburban uh, woman. And so having a moment where there's a flashpoint and a conversation about the president's past behavior with women um, seems like something you don't want to have. And also then to add in the kind of corrupt sounding, even if it's legally defensible, corrupt sounding idea that the president gets defended by Bill Barr just keeps it in the air again. And to go back to Emily's good point, this is turf I should think you wouldn't want to be on. So, you know, even if it's legally possible to press it, why do so? I think, Emily, you've already answered the question, which is minimal pain at the moment to avoid maximum pain of a DNA test. 
Emily, yeah, I want- that makes sense. I mean, the other thing I've been thinking about is like, does this rule make sense? Like, why can't you be sued for defamation in your federal capacity? Like, I don't. Why is that the right answer? I don't get that actually. Well, I, I'm not sure about the can you be sued for defamation overall if you look at the whole government. I think I I and I Emily, maybe you can trace this history for me because I can't remember it, but it, I remember knowing a lot about it back when the Paula Jones suit was going forward. I think it is actually there's something really screwy with the idea that the president can be subject to civil suits while in office. Uh, Yes. Well, that is the rule from the Paula Jones suit where the Supreme Court said, like, you say this is going to be a big distraction and a problem for you. Tough. Like you can sit for depositions just like everybody else. It's so it is massively distracting. And it's you shouldn't you know, you shouldn't uh, toll the the statute of limitations. You should hold you should toll or should toll it, whatever you whatever the verb is. (laughs) You should freeze it so that. And that, and that as soon as the president is out of office, it should be carry. You know, the suit should be pursued with expeditiously, and and should be allowed to go forward expeditiously. But it does seem really weird that the president can be subject to civil cases while in office, and it it's, it does seem hugely distracting. I know with this president, everything is a distraction. He doesn't he's like he doesn't do any work, as far as I can tell. And so it's if he sat for deposition or didn't, it's not like it's he it, it's distracting him from something else that he's doing. But in as a general principle, I think it's weird that the president should have to go through this suit as president, and it can hold. I don't know why Eugene Carroll's suit shouldn't be held until after he's president. But why? Like, why is that? Because I mean, it's so con- distracting. It's him. so distracting and confusing for the country. And yes, she does, and he's he may have done her huge wrong, but it, it, like the presidency requires a certain focus and. And concentration, and if the president is is going to be dragged into legal proceedings, which are then going to be publicized and going to be turned into media circuses, it's it's pretty damaging to their ability to focus and to the public's ability to concentrate on things that actually matter more. So I don't know. I mean, this suit was totally out of the news and presumably mostly out of President Trump's head until Bill Barr made this unusual motion and. I guess I just, at this moment in time, I'm sensitive to any shifts that make the president less subject to the rule of law. Like, that's hardly the direction we need to go in. I mean, I don't, this is like civil lawsuits aren't the hill I would choose to die on. I had mixed feelings about the Paula Jones ruling at the time, but like, eh, I don't know. I sort of feel like it's okay for us to have to think about these accusations. And, and the courts have lots of barriers against super spurious lawsuits for zapping them early on. And yet on the third hand, although I like the final point you made, Emily, one thing I wonder is, is we are in a particular moment where your point, Emily, is right, which is, wait a minute, don't take any fasteners off of the presidency because so many of them have busted already. We need to keep the last little bits of scotch tape holding this thing together. So don't take off another one. However, you could also imagine a situation in which you say, no, put all the previous fashion fasteners back on in law and norms by um, electing better presidents, um, actually punishing them when they don't fulfill the job that they're supposed to be doing. And then take away this one because it does have the effect that David had. I could go for that. You know, and, but that, but that, yeah, I could go for that. It's one of the hardest things, having tried to do this with my book, with saying we've got a crazy situation now, but, but, but all the solutions we would, we would have today might have these longer lasting effects that we should think about. So we got three hands. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, Emily, the effect of allowing the suit to go forward is that the president has now dragoon the Department of Justice and his attorney general into making a preposterously broad new legal claim about the 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 president's uh, untouchability. And so that we've now, the, the fact of this, had we not had the civil suit going forward, we wouldn't now have this precedent of the president like, but making this grand claim. Like- a response you don't like that doesn't seem right like the fact that Barr is willing to do this means we shouldn't have this process at all i mean like let's go back to the um efforts to get trump's tax returns which are different because they're coming from a congressional subpoena and a investigation into fraud by the district attorney in new york like 
Trump could have just turned over the tax returns. He could have turned over this material. The fact that it's turned into this like huge imbroglio, the Justice Department is making all these um, problematic arguments. Like that's their choice. It's not like it's inherent in the legal action that those things have to happen. True, true, definitely. I, I guess I just think like that private civil action of this nature regarding events that occurred many, many years ago, it does seem really not very productive for anybody for this thing to be happening right at the second. Although remember just factually, it's not, it's not merely the um, sexual assault allegations. In fact, that's not the basis of the lawsuit at all. It's the remarks that Trump made last year when these allegations came right, to light, which he was he asked Carol about a liar. Yeah. Like yeah, she, yeah. Right. Yeah. If it was old, it would fall out, you know, with the statute of limitations would have run already. Right. But it was Trump like being asked about it by reporters like she created it by suing. She brought a lawsuit. She wrote a book. He's and 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 he was asked to respond to the book. And it, what is he supposed to do? We didn't have to call her a liar. He didn't have to call her a liar. He didn't. Yeah, he didn't have to call her a liar. That's true. But but. Like he, he, what is he supposed to say? I, I raped her. I, therefore you can't sue me for defamation. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, he, he, he was do. Yes, it was. He, he, he probably lied about something. Um, and he probably defamed her, but it just feels like it's, it was a trap set for him. And I, I don't mind, like he's, he's such a wicked person and he would do anything to anybody. But I, I just as a precedent for the presidency to have the, like these sort of basically minor private matters kind of swirling around while you are trying to be president and trying to keep the country focused on more important matters seems like a bad thing. So I would, again, Trump is, Trump makes liars and fools of us all all the time and makes us look like idiots when we try to defend larger principles. I just guess I feel like the larger principle, which is the two civil suits regarding sexual matters that I can recall of the presidency, which is Paula Jones and this one, don't seem to me to be like really good, have been good for the country in any respect. And yet if you go back to the Paula Jones lawsuit, like it was revealing about Bill Clinton in ways that we then experienced again in his affair with Monica Lewinsky. Like it was telling that lawsuit and that episode. And I wonder if there is something actually to be learned from these moments of questionable behavior. I also wouldn't call them minor private matters, but you know, I mean, look, like if I was ranking what I want the president to be subject to in the rule of law, I would put private civil lawsuits toward the bottom of lots of other things. I, I, I'm just not I don't know. I'm less ready to let go of them entirely, though I can imagine them being misused. I'm not sure. Looking back, I think that the Paula Jones suit against Clinton should have been stopped. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. For a couple of years back in the early 2010s, I had the joy of being Matt Iglesias' boss and editor. This was back before he co-founded Vox, before he started the Weeds podcast, before he became the, the Twitter giant that he is today. But I had it was like a real, like one of my favorite things that I used to do was just to kind of walk into Matt's office and then you know, sometimes with a story idea, sometimes to respond to one of his story ideas, but just to kind of bounce something off of him generally. And you could not go into Matt's office without having a delightful and unlikely conversation. He would undertake any intellectual challenge, consider any question. It was made him an ideal colleague. And I still remember the conversation, which maybe, Matt, you turned into a piece, I don't even remember, about the economics of Pan Am, the Hunger Games, <laughs> the Hunger Games. Uh, oh, yeah geography and like how it Land. made no sense and it was i i think about that like at least once a week anyway so matt has now spun one of his speculative ideas into an entire marvelous book one billion americans a case for thinking bigger 
he's going to tell us what that means in a minute. But in any case, Matt, welcome back to the GabFest and congratulations on the book. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm really glad to be here. Um, I feel like this this book is like a it's a very slate kind of idea. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to be, you know, back back with the old gang here. Uh, all right, well, bring it. So tell us, what. so what is the main thrust of your argument that there should be 1 billion Americans? How do we get to 1 billion Americans? Why do we want 1 billion Americans? What is that going to get us, briefly? The high-level idea is a lot of people are concerned about China. They seem really bad. Uh, President Trump, you know, wants to ban their video meme apps. Uh, but if you think about, you know, what sort of drives this, this geopolitical competition, why is China a big deal in the world? It's because there's so many people there, really, not because of, like, the particulars of, of anything else. And so the supposition here is, well, maybe we should try to close that gap, uh, you know, by having more people in the United States. You know, people sometimes ask me, why a billion? Um, it's it's because it's a round number. You know, it's not it's not brain surgery. Um, but, you know, the, the idea of the book is to kind of think through the implications of that, right? Because it's like an easy thing to say, you're sitting around the office, you're, you're BSing around, like, what if we just had way more people? And so you might think, oh, there's all kinds of problems with that. We'll run out of water. Uh, there's no place for them to live. But the book is about really sort of taking you through it. And you see, that's not the case. At 1 billion Americans, we would have the population density of France. We would have about half the density of Germany. These are, you know, nice, comfortable countries. Um, we would still have way more water on a per capita basis than most countries. But then, you know, we would need places for them to live. So I've read about housing policy. We need ways to get around. So we read about transportation. And there's a lot of economic implications of, like, how do we get the people, right? What do we do to support Americans who want to have more children? What do we do to bring more immigrants here? How do we work that out? So I, I wanted the book to be... A lot of books that people like me write are sort of boring because you go through nine chapters of like, here, I'm going to convince you this thing is a big problem. And then at the end, there's this kind of unpersuasive, you know, solutions chapter. So I wanted to do the opposite, like frame a problem quickly. There's a lot more people in China and then go through the solutions at, at great length because I think they're interesting sort of on their own terms, whether or not you, you know, ultimately sign up for the one billion. So let's talk about housing, because I think your framing, as you've just laid out, is has all these geopolitical implications internationally. But really, I feel like the heart of the book is about these domestic concerns. Um, mm -hmm. how to, follow, to follow Matt Iglesias on Twitter is to be subject to a constant barrage of tweets about housing, basically. <laughs> I, I value this about Matt's Twitter feed. In my family, it is a frequent subject of conversation. I totally agree. Because I live in Connecticut, one of the states in the union with like the worst, most um, regressive, segregating, shitty housing policies. Um because we have all these teeny little towns and they all set their own rules and their rules are often set to be quite exclusionary. And there's not very much sharing of resources with the, the baby cities of Connecticut, Hartford, Bridgeport, and New Haven. So how do you imagine actually changing that? Like the 1 billion Americans, if it happened, would create like you say, I mean, obviously a real need for housing. Is that, do we have to have the massive wave of immigration in order to deal with our housing policy? No, look, I mean, housing is an issue that we ought to address, you know, one way or the other. I, I think an obvious objection to more people is, well, it'll make our housing problems worse. Uh, but the, you know, current housing situation is not great on its own terms. Uh, just this morning before we recorded, President Trump was tweeting about uh, Cory Booker and his plan to uh, destroy destroy the suburbs. Uh, <laughs> as, as Booker, President man, Trump's he is busy. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, so, uh, but th this is a real piece of legislation, actually, that, that the president is talking about. And his idea would be to say, okay, federal transportation money uh, will not go unless, to, will only go to cities and states that agree to, you know, eliminate some of their exclusionary zoning policies. Uh, the way it's actually written as legislation is a little sort of vague and high level, but, you know, Department of Housing and Urban Development could take a look and could say, you know, a given state, Connecticut's a great example. You know, you have towns where the price of housing is astronomically high, but nothing is being built. And then you have other towns where people are very, very poor and educational opportunities are bad. You say, look, like Connecticut, if you want this transportation money, like you got to do something about that. You got to let people put some apartment buildings up in Greenwich or wherever. I, I don't even know what. Just what a duplex nice once in a while might even. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here and there. Um, states also do it on their own, right? So 
California was considering this bill to allow duplexes to be built sort of all throughout the state. Uh, It passed the state Senate and it passed the state assembly, which you might think would mean it would happen. But thanks to some weird procedural (laughs) shenanigans, it like wasn't done with the right timing. So it's now expired at the end of their legislative session. But that was a good idea. The city of Portland, Oregon, They passed a big reform last month that's going to allow for sort of four-unit apartments throughout the city and six-unit apartments if they're sort of nonprofit with a subsidized element. It's like a very lefty version of it. So, you know, you have kind of like left-wing affordable housing kind of spins on this and more right-wing deregulatory spins on it. But the basic aim of any kind of housing policy reform is to take the decision-making up to a higher level. So you're not looking at a tiny New England town or a little neighborhood association here in D.C. or a community board in New York, but you're instead having a state saying, this is a problem, we need to let more people build houses someplace. Uh, and we've seen like some good steps along those lines, but you know, we, we need more. Matt, how you, you mentioned that, um, that there's an absence of shared purpose. Um, how uh, how does this create that shared purpose? Because I can imagine everybody like uh, focusing on all the challenges this would pose. <laughs> so how how do you imagine that this excites people's um, desire for a shared purpose? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think in my dippy idealistic mode, it seems to me that, you know, historically, when the country has faced international challenges, whether that's the Cold War, the World Wars, things like that, that that's when, you know, a very big, very diverse country, ethnically diverse, geographically dispersed, ideological disagreements, which have always been with us, that those have tended to be the times when people say, you know, what What do we really have in common here, right? That it's, it's easy to get hung up on kind of what divides us. And of course, you always have disagreements. So part of my hope to be, uh, try to be a little optimistic about the future is that as the kind of unipolar moment in, in international affairs fades away, that that may have some domestic benefits. I mean, I'm trying to offer one big idea here for how to think about that and and some ways to fulfill it. But just separately, analytically, I mean, if we keep on with the level of like culture war craziness that dominates our politics now, like we're obviously not going to we're just like not going to get that far as a country. Uh, now, obviously, I started writing this book before the COVID-19 pandemic, and the results, I think, have not been that encouraging about the idea that an external threat would help pull people together. Um, that has not been the lived experience of this disease. On the other hand, I mean, it, it shows the costs, right? I mean, if you turn everything from like masks to, you know, like, what do we call the virus into fodder for just endless sort of culture war infighting. It's like, it's crippling. And now we're all like, we got no kids in school and it sucks. Yeah. And just to, I'm going a little out of turn here, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's highly irregular for a leader who's gotten to the level they are to not actually run at one of these challenges like COVID and see it as an opportunity to do great things because the, with, you know, with challenge comes opportunity. So we're in a, we're it's all that you say is true, but we also have such an idiosyncratic leader responding to it in a way not familiar with normal leaders. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you you're you're like deep into presidential history all the time, John. And like, you know, yeah, I mean, there were even these reports that like Bill Clinton would sometimes get sad that his presidency was such a kind of benign time that it didn't let him be the kind of great leader that presidents want to be. Of course, you know, nobody. I hope nobody like wishes for war or terrorist attacks or things like that. But those are the the times when sensible politicians try to sort of seize the mantle of leadership, bring people together. And, you know, like most leaders around the world have high approval ratings now as a result of the pandemic. It's like let them show off their chops and be on camera a lot. And and Trump is just weird in that regard. I mean, you have to figure any sort of more normal Republican, even if their policies would have been similar in some ways, just would have had a a different tone and, and a different politics around this. 
All right. I want to get back to the billion. That's a big number. I yeah. love that number. So you rightly make this comparison to China and the fact that China has risen to vast global power. It clearly is set on being at least the equal of the United States, if not superior to us, and is, has this belt and road. It is it is the emerging huge power. And we want to match that. And we don't want, we don't want the world to be run by China. But I, I want to point to India, which is how does India fit into this model? India also has a billion, more than a billion people, but India is not poised to become a global superpower in the way that China is. Is a billion people, a billion people is a necessary but not sufficient condition? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting, right? I mean, different countries have different sorts of views of things. And I think at one time, you know, Americans were fairly optimistic that, you know, China could just sort of grow and would become more integrated into the international system or that the PRC didn't have a real animating ideology. And so they would be kind of content to tend to their own gardens. It hasn't worked out that way. You know, India is much poorer than China on a per person basis. So, you know, their aggregate economy is well behind the United States, well behind China, still behind Japan, still behind Germany. So I don't think we really know, right? I mean, hopefully, like, India's economy will continue to grow. And so one of the points I make in the book is that, you know, it may be the case that China stumbles or that India never, you know, gets richer um, and the United States stays number one uh, despite a kind of, you know, shrinking population. Uh, But that would be sad too, right? I mean, one of the best things that's happened uh, over the course of our lifetimes has been the incredible reduction in poverty in China uh, for all the sort of problems with that government and that regime. So we should hope that India does well. Um, We should hope also that they move off some of the like Hindu nationalist ideology that's dominating things there would make India a sort of major power. And it would be interesting, right? Perhaps a democratic power, maybe one we're more sympathetic to. Uh, But right now, they're still way, way, way behind China on just sort of basic economic clout and not in a lot of position to go toe to toe with anybody. One of the focuses of your book is your concern for American families and kids and how much we have created an economy and a system that's inadequate for the needs of families. You talk about the recognition that though the standard K through 12 public school concept is invaluable, it's also insanely limited. I think a lot of families are feeling that particularly (laughs) acutely right now in pandemic land. Um, And again, it seems like we could increase the number of people with kids as a way of increasing their political clout and kind of force the government to deal with it by having a younger population. But we also obviously could just like figure out how to make families' lives easier with different kinds of um, government intervention. And I wonder along those lines, what you think is the most promising? Like, what would you do first if you could um, wave a magic wand? I mean, I think just giving money to families with children uh, is very helpful, right? Uh, The the United States, I mean, leaving aside anything about population, birth rates, anything like that, uh, the United States has an incredibly high child poverty rate. And that's because most countries just give cash grants to parents of young children, and we don't. We should do that. It would address a very acute, very urgent problem. Uh, The evidence, though, also suggests that people would have more children uh, if, if we did that. And in particular, if we made it a universal program, right, there's there's sort of two ways to structure programs. We could have a strictly means-tested thing. So people who are very poor sort of get the money to lift them over the line, but then we phase it out the way we do with food stamps. Or we could make it more like Social Security, right? We should say, like, just as we have a fiscal support for retired people, this is financial support for parents of young children. If we do it that way in a big way, which, which I think we should, I mean, I think it's a good moral statement, right? Even if families with low six-figure incomes don't desperately need extra money from the government, still like the statement that children are expensive and parenting is important is one worth making. And, you know, the, the evidence that researchers have looked at from international context is people would have more children if that was the case. Uh, one of the things that really 
influenced my thinking was when it was pointed out to me that the number of kids that people say they want to have, it fell a lot in the 1970s, right? The the baby boom mentality kind of went away, feminism, all, all that stuff we know. Uh, but it's been very steady since the early 80s at about 2.5 children. Uh, but the number of kids that people are actually I have, th- having- I, have three, I have three children and want 2.5 of them. <laughs> Exactly. Um, but, the, but the number of kids that people actually have has been dwindling down below two, and it keeps slipping a little bit, a little bit each year. So, you know, when we talk about fertility policy or pronatalism, these are words that most people I know are pretty uncomfortable with. I don't love them either. Uh, but we're really not talking about a sort of like, I don't know, like a weird, creepy propaganda campaign to like convince people that children are good. We're talking about finding ways to help people meet the family aspirations that they more or less already have, right? At at one point in the book, you know, I I have this hypothetical. It's like, what if we didn't have public schools at all? Um, And like, now we know. Hmm, Uh, It's it's no good. (laughs) It's a huge pain, right? Like, it doesn't, you know, and it's a particularly acute problem, of course, with everything for, for the poor, right? You you really wonder, like, what are kids, um, you know, whose parents are doing low-wage service jobs outside the house, like, how are they going to get by? But it's a problem for everybody, right? Like, middle-class families could not sustain two or three child households if it was just forever going to be the case that there was no public education, that the costs wouldn't add up, that the time wouldn't be there. And we actually, though, do so little for families during the summertime before kids are five years old, things like that. And so, you know, in addition to just money, it's about filling in the gaps to say, look, this is an important public service, like the fire department, and it doesn't just like go away for three months at a time in the middle of the summer because it's uncomfortable to wear the gear when it's hot out. Um, and just like really like live up to the kind of basic obligations of, of parenting and family life. So Matt, I have a, a kind of a two-part question. The first of which is, is not meant to sound um, the way it's going to sound. But anyway, does the book require kind of an animating jingoism? Because China has to be a sufficient threat to have propulsive force to get people to entertain the idea. And I don't actually mean that, but I also wonder, because um, w- what you're talking about is is bringing in, well, anyway, so just that's the that's the kind of that just occurred to me. The other thought is, how do you deal with the environmental impact of these numbers? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, I don't like to think of it as jingoistic, uh, <laughs> but it is, it's patriotic. You know, I mean, I, I think that this is something that, you know, has kind of changed as the, you know, you work on a book, it takes a while, different things happen in the world. And <laughs> it's now sort of came to occur to me, like, this is a book with like, it's red, white, and blue on the cover. There's a lot of stars everywhere. The sort of, underlying premise is that America is good and we should want America to be uh, the champ. Um, and, you know, some stuff that's happened in the world sort of causes more people on the left to to look askance at some of those ideas. But I think, you know, in the United States, at least, any kind of successful politics is patriotic, right? I mean, it's, it's fine to be a, you know, leftist intellectual and do weird takes about whatever. But, you know, like Joe Biden, he stands up there with all these surrounded by American flags, right? In a way that like Uncle Merkel doesn't do that, actually, right? You don't have a politics of patriotism in Germany in the same way. Uh, And that's because Germany and the United States have very different histories. Um, and, And America, you know, sustains itself as a society based on a kind of creedal civic nationalism. It's like the only thing that holds us together in some respects, and all kind of politics taps into that. And so I think this book absolutely does, right? If you are completely blasé about American leadership in the world, aspects of it don't seem that compelling. But I just think there's so much buy-in on the idea that that's important, Mm -hmm. that it, it shouldn't be a huge stumbling block for people. The environment, you know, is a tough one, right? Uh, this is like a biggest question that that I get for, from people on the left. And I think it starts, though, with recognizing that climate change is really a global problem, right? So the biggest way that bringing more people into the United States sort of 
increases environmental problems is if you move here from Nigeria or Haiti or Peru or, or what have you, uh, you become much wealthier. Um, and as a wealthy American person, your environmental footprint gets way bigger. And then the question becomes like, well, so is there a solution to this problem going to be that everyone all around the world should just stay poor forever because that would be more convenient? And I, I don't think that's what progressive people think, but it's definitely what conservatives say progressive people think, right? It's a sort of caricatured view. But when you recognize that that's not going to happen, like, the United States is 15% of global carbon dioxide emissions. China is the number one emitter. India is the number one source of growth. Vietnam is not going to stop industrializing just because, you know, the Sunrise Movement asks them to. Uh, so how can America actually contribute to the solution of this problem? And it's by, you know, deploying clean energy resources that already exist. I got solar panels on my roof this summer. You know, everybody should do it too. And it's by trying to innovate, right? I mean, if you could make... There's people who get like all hyped up about nuclear micro reactors. If you could make that work, like that would be great. Uh, if you could make a way a zero carbon cement manufacturing process, that would be great. Because right now you can't make cement or steel without crazy levels of carbon dioxide emissions. And people in the developed world, they're not going to just live in little rickety huts forever, right? Like we we need to actually solve these problems. And population growth is not an impediment to solving the hard technical problems of climate change. If anything, in some ways, it makes it easier, right? You bring more innovation in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think ultimately the conflict there is less than people think it is, in part because the climate challenge is in a lot of ways harder than people want to portray it to be. It's not, it's not something you can fix by just getting everyone to drive a Prius or something. I mean, I do. So I, 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 try, I try to, <laughs> you know, uh, but it's like... The problem has so much more scope. And like either we are going to find a way to make high living standards eco ecologically sustainable or we're not. And if we don't, just like counting on poverty and immiseration in the rest of the world to carry us through, it's like it's a non-answer. Matt Iglesias is the author of One Billion Americans, A Case for Thinking Bigger. Buy it. Thanks for joining <laughs> us, Matt. Thank you. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter when you're having one billion drinks with your one billion American neighbors. John Dickerson, what are you going to be chattering about? My chatter is about the ashes of Dorothy Parker, um, who died in 1967 at age 73. She was one of the members of the Algonquin Roundtable, a famous writer of plays and poetry and essays and humor, like a, the basically the most famous female humorist of her day and satirist with great lines like men seldom make passes at girls who wear glasses and the cure for boredom is curiosity. There is no cure for curiosity. And asked to make a pun on horticulture at the Algonquin Roundtable, she said, you can lead a horticulture, but you can't make her think. None of this, of course. That's an amazing line. Is, that is an amazing line. Do you think she thought of it like right like that? I think she probably thought of it while she was, um, you know, mixing her coffee and then just kind of held it in her back pocket until the moment was ripe. Um, because she was the kind of person who played with words and ideas all the time in her head. So it was, she was just a bursting font. Anyway, when she died in 1967, she had this um, very elaborate will that dictated that she, that her ash, what should be done with her ashes and her estate. And basically her estate and her royalties from her writings were left to Martin Luther King Jr., who was a little bit surprised that this was done. But in the event of his death, they were then left to the NAACP. <laughs> the end of it, what's the NAACP going to do with her ashes? So they, they sat in limbo for a long time in the Westchester County crematorium. Then they were in her lawyer's office, which is very weird. But then uh, Benjamin Hooks, the executive director of the NAACP, learned about all of this, and he took the ashes and put them to rest in a memorial garden at the NAACP in Baltimore. The NAACP is now planning to move to D.C., and so what are you going to do? So they didn't know what to do with their ashes. But finally, on her 27th, uh, sorry, on what would have been her 127th birthday, they took her ashes, which were, again, what to do with them. They've been taken out of the ground. They are now in the Bronx's Wood Woodlawn Cemetery with her parents and grandparents. And most famously, she once joked to Vanity Fair that she wanted her gravestone to read, 
excuse my dust. Emily, what is your chatter? I have been spending my week um, receiving an outpouring of Zoom school hell stories. There are many of them on the internet as kids run into problems getting started with remote school. And beyond the technical glitches, one of the, I think, emerging issues is the invasive nature of a school pointing a camera inside students' homes. This was really clear in a story this week out of Colorado where a 12-year-old kid was playing with an obviously toy gun during a class, and his teacher reported this, and the police wound up knocking at his door, and he was later suspended for five days, and now he has a record with the sheriff's office and a mark on his school paperwork saying he brought a facsimile of a firearm to school, even though, of course, there was no to school. This was all happening over the screen of a computer. I just really worry about how this is all going to go. There are so many challenges with remote school. And I think that starting from a posture of being punitive in a way that reaches inside people's homes is a real mistake. That's the report from Zoom school in the first week for many students around the country. How on earth could that be? I can understand how the school could somehow say he brought it to school. But how could the government say he brought it to school? That's ludicrous. How could they, the justice system I say assume that? that these charges will wind up being dropped, but I think the idea is that school happening at your house is still somehow school. I mean, certainly my son's experience thus far is that no provision for the idea that they're not there. Like the hours are the same, supposedly the expectations are the same. It, there's just no accommodation for this entirely different universe. I feel like the whole thing is being crafted by adults with very little thought to the actual uh, happiness and um, reality of kids. It's kind of astounding. Uh, my chatter is about an amazing Twitter thread I saw from Cecily Zander at CN Zander. It is Civil War Generals as Muppets, a definitive thread. And what Cecily Zander and all of Cecily Zander's uh, correspondents have done, people who've replied to Cecily Zander, is side-by-side photos of Muppets and Civil War generals and other Civil War figures. It is the most (laughs) joyful thing you will get in your life if you care either about the Civil War or about Muppets. So there's George Custer, who is Miss Piggy, uh, William Sherman, Tecumseh Sherman as Menomina. Oh my God, that one is amazing. Joshua Chamberlain, hero of Gettysburg as the Swedish chef. Uh, Jefferson Davis as Count Von Count. That's another great one. There's also this guy I'd never even heard of who is a Confederate general named Lafayette McLaws, who looks like you You see the guy and you're like, oh, he is a Muppet. That isn't a person. That's actually a Muppet. And then you realize, no, Lafayette McLaws was a genuine Confederate general. It's, it's uh, a, an amazing Twitter thread. Check it out. Civil War generals as Muppets. Listeners, you have also sent us great chatters this week. Please keep tweeting them to us at Slate GabFest, or you can email them to us at GabFest at Slate.com too. In fact, this week we got one via email from Paul, and Paul points us to the obituary on the last page of the August 29th issue of The Economist, and it is an obituary for a man named Marvin Creamer who died at age 104 recently. And he, in 1982, at age 66, sailed around the world using no instruments. He navigated by stars, uh, like his heroes, the ancient mariners, the Vikings and Chinese. And sometimes he couldn't see the stars, so he took his cues from things like the color of the water and the interaction of the waves. Amazing little obituary of a really remarkable person. So check that out. The GapFest is Produced by Jocelyn Frank, our researchers Bridget Dunlap, Gabriel Roth is editorial director, June Thomas is managing producer, Alicia Montgomery is executive producer for Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest, and please join us next Wednesday at 7 p.m. for our live show, our live show streaming on YouTube. Go to slate.com slash live to join. It is free. We're doing it in partnership with the Texas Tribune. Jamel Bowie is joining us as our special guest. And Jamel will join us as our special guest. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? We have a 
really nice uh, slight plus from one of you, dear listeners. At Elia Powers tweeted at us a couple weeks ago, what T movie or TV show you loved growing up or even what book would you most want to see rebooted as a 10 episode Netflix or Hulu streaming series? All my favorites from the 90s seem to be being remade this way. So, so thinking about things that we used to love to watch that we think deserve to live again. I have so many thoughts on this. I'm happy to go first since you guys didn't even know what the topic was. So here I go. You're, oh my God, you're totally narking us out. I don't appreciate it. Um, <laughs> I've always, when have I ever been gracious and not, and not narked you? Never. Pretty much that never. Zero times. Okay. So the number one, which I have obsessed with, I haven't done the research to figure out why. Welcome back, Cotter. Great 70s show. It is incomprehensible to me that it has not been remade in Brooklyn, in a woke Brooklyn, like a woke, uh, basically this new podcast, Nice White Parents, is Welcome Back, Cotter, in some weird fa- fashion. I was thinking of that show Community. I mean, I know it's about community college, not high school, but. No, it's got to be high school. It's got like, and also community is more about the, I don't, I haven't really watched community, but it's, it's the whole point is Brooklyn. It's like multiracial, like, like, uh, you know, you got the wisecracking teacher. You you can, you know, you can mix it up and in ways that did before. There's so much great sort of gentrification politics, race politics, school politics that can all be played for laughs. It is just, it is just there for the taking. Maybe somebody who owns the rights refuses to give it up. But welcome back, Cotter. Please make it. That's number one. Kind of in the same spirit, actually. I would remake uh, Family Ties. That's which a I good think was, call. It was a really good wait. show. Michael J. Fox. No, I know. But wait, I'm, I'm, uh, I keep, I'm fascinated with what this answer is going to be. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFestPlus to become a member today.